The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Well, the guy doing the announcements this morning took way too long, so I need you to turn your minds on. I need you to open your ears wide open to listen quickly. And I need you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Most of you are familiar with the story of Martin Luther uh, nailing his 95 theses to the wall there in Wittenberg, to the church wall. He had a, he had a desire to confront things that he saw wrong within the Catholic Church, uh, to reform the church. And, and by this nailing of these statements, he put them on the wall as a subject for conversation, as a subject to be debated. He had no idea that that would spark what would become the Protestant Reformation, uh, of which even we are a, a reap the benefit of to this day, uh, having a return to the Scripture and the scriptural truth of the Christian faith. But, but many of you know the story, you're familiar with it. However, few of you probably know any of what those 95 theses were. Uh, who knows any of them by a raise of hand? Now's your time to show off. we got one, we got two, we got a couple. The very first one is the one I want to draw our attention to this morning, an introduction to the, the message. The very first one of these 95 statements that Martin Luther came up with is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So, so that repentance in the mind of Martin Luther as he studied the Word of God was not a one-time thing that we, we come to and we leave behind and forget about as we move forward in Christ. Rather, repentance is a daily practice of the believer. Repentance is something that the believer enters into and never departs from. You've heard me say it before, I hope, that, that the Christian life isn't so much as about living a perfect life as it is living a life of repentance, living a life of, of humility, of brokenness before the Lord and turning from sin, turning to the Savior. Repentance is a word that we seldom hear spoken today. Now, there are many pulpits around this country that you never hear the word from. It's a word that means to... To have another mind uh, literally means to do an about-face, even as you think of the military formation, an about-face, and they turn completely in the opposite direction of that which they were going. It means to let go of one thing and, and, and grab hold of another. Re repentance. It's a call of God to the sinner throughout the entirety of the Bible. You trace the word repent and repentance throughout the Scripture. You, you see it over and over again, God calling to sinners. The first step of coming to Him is that of repentance. I'll read just a couple. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14. You hear this often. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here it is, and turn from their wicked ways. So you can't keep going in your wicked ways and bring God into your wickedness. You must turn. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isaiah 55 and verse 7, if you were here this past Wednesday night, this great invitation based on the, the work of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 
Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God he will abundantly pardon him. To forsake the wicked ways and, and forsake the unrighteous thoughts to turn to the Lord. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, a beautiful verse revealing the heart of God for sinners. He says, Say to them as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn. Repent, that he turned from his way, and he lives. And turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This message of repentance is the subject of John the Baptist's proclamation that we read in John chapter 3. And we are continuing our study in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. It follows John chapter 2, which was the story of uh, concluding there of Jesus and Mary and Joseph fleeing from Herod, going to Egypt, and then returning some years later when God brought message to them of, of, of it being safe to return to Palestine. They settled in Nazareth, and in the Gospel of Matthew skips about 30 years from chapter 2 to chapter 3 to the very onset of the ministry of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I want to give to you an outline this morning that is merely an outline upon which I can kind of organize my thoughts and hopefully convey them to you about this text, about this passage this morning. We're going to look to the man, we're going to look to the message, and we're going to look to the meaning. The man, John the Baptist, the message that he proclaimed, and then the meaning for us today. How does this apply to your life and to my life? So first, let's consider the man, John the Baptist. We are introduced to him in verse 1. In those day, John, days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John was the, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was the heralder, the proclaimer that came before the king to prepare the way of the entrance of the king. He was known as the Baptist, the baptizer, because that's the rite that he performed. It was baptism. Now, now baptism by immersion was not a common practice in Judaism. It was not a common practice of the Jews in that day and age. It would actually be, in in a large way, offensive for an ethnic Jew to be baptized. Only time that uh, baptism by immersion occurred was when a Gentile, an outsider, was embracing God in Judaism. And so the outsider, the Gentile, was baptized into the Judaic faith in a public presentation of his identity being brought into the fold, so to speak. And so for an ethnic Jew one who was of the covenant people of God, to go through immersion would in in a large way be admitting I am an outsider now being brought in, that I was wrong with God and now I'm seeking to be made right with God. It was a public proclamation of repentance. And so it rightly matched the message that John proclaimed. John was the son of a priest who was called to be a prophet. Remember his father, Zechariah? He had a special announcement from God that he and his barren wife, his wife being unable to conceive children into their old age, would would bear a child. John would be one who would become a great prophet. John was one who, from a child even, was to take the Nazarite vow. Uh, You think back to the Old Testament of Samuel and Samson. It was a special special vow of, of, of consecration, of separation unto the Lord. And there were some public things they were to avoid. They were, they were to not eat anything of the vine, no grape, no grape juice. They were not to not cut their hair. Uh, they were to not touch any dead thing, lest they be profile, uh, profaned by it. They, they had these outward expressions of this vow that was a, a vow of special consecration to God. John was one who was to have this vow for all his life. His life was to be especially devoted to the Lord and to the purpose of the Lord. He fulfilled a unique place as the last prophet of the Old Testament. Now, many of you, if I asked who's the last prophet of the Old Testament, you would rightly in one way say Malachi. But it was some 400 years that God (laughs) passed after Malachi of, of no prophet, of no revelation, and then comes John on the scene technically as the last Old Testament prophet. John being raised up under this old covenant in a transitionary time to prepare the way of the ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a special and unique calling as this prophet who would come in the same spirit as Elijah, Jesus even says, that if you can handle this, John is actually Elijah. And it's a prophecy going back to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where where Malachi gives a prophecy that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. And Jesus says, well, John is Elijah. Not that he was a reincarnation of Elijah, but he came in the same spirit, continuing the same work as the prophets of God of, of old, preparing even the way for what Jesus would do, for who Jesus was as the Savior of the world. His life, and the the living even of of his diet and of his attire, matched the message that he proclaimed, much like the Old Testament prophets, many of them. You say, why did he live in a desert region and preach in the wilderness and wear... um, clothed in a camel's hair, a leather belt, and eat locusts, and eat, eat honey. All of these were in, in set in striking contrast to the religious leaders of the day. 
who, who marched around in their arrogance and pride and in their ornate robes and, and clothing and in, in, in places of worship. John is preaching through his living even this message of repentance. And so he was a unique character to say the least. Uh, the, I think the striking nature of his message and the uniqueness of who he was as this prophet of the Lord, it, it garnished attention. The crowds went out of all the cities around and gathered to hear this message from John the Baptist. And many of them followed the message of John the Baptist. It says many had gathered and were being baptized and they were confessing their sins. They were confessing their, their wrongness before the pub, public crowd that had, had gathered there. What was the message, secondly? i got to hurry. The message... Repent, it says, for the kingdom of God is at hand, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. His, his calling was to prepare the way for the Lord, and he did so not only by announcing that it was coming, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a, a message that the Jews knew meant the Messiah is on going to come on the scene. The, the rest, restoration promises of time past were about to come true. That the Messiah was coming to free them, to bless them, to redeem them, to, in their thought, physically even restore the nation of Israel. And it would also be a time of great judgment in their mind because he would judge the enemies of his people. And so John is given to, to prepare them for what is to come, but but he comes not only to relay to them that the kingdom is at hand, but also to prepare them for the reception of what is to come. To prepare their own hearts. And he does so by giving a command, and that command is repent. Recognize your sin and turn from it to the Lord. And it's only by doing so that you will be prepared to rightly understand and rightly see and rightly believe Jesus Christ and what he has come to do. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John had said when he saw Christ, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in preparation for the Israelites, the Jews, to rightly see and rightly believe what the, the kingdom of heaven is going to be about, how it's going to be ushered in, first, they must repent. That they must come to see their sin for what their sin is and try to turn to God and understand they're in need of salvation. It's only then, John says, that they'll, they'll rightly understand Jesus, that he can prepare the way and make straight the way for what the Messiah is actually going to do, what the Messiah is actually going to accomplish. It says the Sadducees and the Pharisees caught wind of this and gathered. And they came out to see what's all the ruckus. What is this is gaining such a crowd, so, so popular? They, they really, I believe, in envy, went out to see how is this one man working these things to draw these crowds that they really desired to have control over. The Pharisees were the religious, the religious zealots, the religious elite of the day, and their, their devout form of works that they publicly made known all the time. Uh, you, you could call them the ritualists. You could call them the legalists. The, the Sadducees were a different group of leaders. They were more of the wealthy 
intellectual, political leaders of the day. They had given way to much of Roman authority. They sought compromise with Rome in order to maintain their wealth and their power, their prominence. They controlled much that went on within the temple and even the selling of the sacrifices, making profit and controlling the people off of the religion. They denied much of what they would call superstitious beliefs of angels and of demons, of the resurrection of the dead. They were, in a way, the liberals of the day. They were, in a way, the liberals and those that would compromise their religious history for the the pragmatics of what it would bring them and their relationship to Rome and their maintaining of power and their maintaining of wealth. So these two groups of people show up on the scene, and John's words were quite quite, uh, strong against them. Brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Who told you about the wrath to come? He knew their hearts, that they had not come in repentance. They had come merely desiring to see what the show was about. It says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Your lives don't reflect a repentant heart. Your life, he says, is filled with pride and arrogance. And we don't have time to dive into all the remaining of the, the, the things that he says, but just to briefly summarize it, he looks to them and he says, you're counting on your pious works and you're counting on your heritage of godliness and your forefathers to be the reasoning why you think you don't need to repent. The reasoning why you think you're okay and you're alright with God. you got a lot of money and you got a lot of prestige and a lot of power, Sadducees. you got a lot of devotion, Pharisees, a lot of legalistic things that you do before crowds and people look up to you for your religious, zealous uh, works. But he says, God's God's laid the axe to the root. God is bringing judgment even upon the house of Israel. And your ethnic heritage, your status, does not make you justified before God, he says. He says God could raise up stones to be the children of God. Your your descendants from Abraham does not mean you are justified. Repentance is still needed. And he says there's one coming that's greater than I am. One coming who will baptize not only a baptism under repentance as I am, but he will baptize with spirit and with fire. Spirit for those that repent and fire, judgment for those who don't repent. And he gives this little illustration of a a winnowing fan and a threshing floor. If you know anything about how they thresh grain in that day and age, they take the grain that they just cut with all the stalks and the husk that's around the grain and they they pile it in in a pile on the threshing floor. And they would stomp it, or they would get even animals, uh, ox that would come in and, and go round and round, stomping it, crushing it. And that would separate the grain from the husk, and it would separate all what's called the chaff, all the waste that's not the grain. And then they'd take what would be like a pitchfork or a shovel, a winnowing fan, and they'd pick it up and let it drop. And the wind would separate the chaff, all the waste, from the actual kernels of grain that would fall down to the ground right there before them. And they would sweep up the grain and make a pile of the grain and continue this until they get all the grain out. And all that's left on the threshing floor is chaff, the husks of the grain and just the the stalks and uh, all, all the waste. And then they would set a match. Nah, they didn't have matches in that day and age. And then they would strike a stone and they would light the chaff. And the chaff would burn away. And so John uses that illustration that God has often used throughout the Old Testament to say, a time of judgment is coming on those who have not repented, on those who think that in and of themselves, in their status, in their works, that they can be justified before God. There is judgment that is impending. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The meaning, thirdly, application. What is John, what is God, what is Matthew, through this passage teaching you and I this morning? To put simply, to put bluntly and concisely, to believe upon Jesus, you must repent of your sin. believe upon Jesus, you must repent of your sin. It is repentance and a recognition of your sinfulness and of your need of salvation and a a turning away from that 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 prepares you to rightly receive Jesus, to rightly see and understand and know what He truly accomplished for you, and therefore rightly believe upon Him as Lord and Savior, that without repentance, the, the way has not been prepared, you will never believe rightly upon Jesus for your salvation until repentance is had, until repentance is found. No repentance equals a false faith. No fruits of repentance equals a a, a, a false faith. James speaks of it, that you show me your faith without your works, I will show you my faith by my works. And we get so confused as to Paul's views of justification versus James' views of justification. How does, how does repentance and faith go hand in hand? We are not saved by our repentance. We're saved by faith and by faith alone and the grace of God. And yet faith will never be true faith unless repentance has been found. I've struggled with this a little bit on how do I convey this simply where where you'll get it, where we'll understand that we're not saved because of our repentance. Repentance in and of itself is a good thing, but is not a saving thing. It's good if somebody realizes that they're a sinner. And it's good even if they try to turn away from that sin. But if they don't have what atones, if they don't have the blood of Christ, if they don't have Jesus dying upon a cross for the sins of the world and turned to the Savior, their repentance is futile. It's empty. We must repent but we must have a Savior to turn to. And it's the repentance that prepares the way in order to believe rightly and understand who Jesus is and what He did for us. Who's a good sinner in the room that I can call up on the stage? I see one. Matt, come on up here. I did not tell him I was going to do this. But I have a little weight of sin that I want you to hold for me. It's dirty, so don't put it up against your clothes there. That is how we are born, and that is how we live, holding our sins and holding on to the weight even of our sins, even as it it ruins our lives. Because there's a pleasure of sin that lasts for a season. And so many live this life in this world just grabbing on to it, not not wanting to let it go because they're they're enjoying the fleeting pleasures of it in spite of the weight of it all, in spite of it ruining their lives as we see witnessed over and over and over and over again all around us. If I came as the preacher, I offered to you Jesus. His Word is going to picture Him in this offer of salvation. And I told you about the love of Christ for you. I said, here it is. Take, take Christ. Believe upon Him. Receive the Lord Jesus. <laughs> he tried in one way to. <laughs> that ain't how it works. 
I got to finish. Thank you for your assistance on the spot there. If your hands are full of your sin that you're holding on to, so many people do this. So many, so many emotional, even manipulative, evangelistic calls are given where a sad story is told of an unexpected death, and people in an emotional, like, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven, they come forward and they recite a prayer, and they may even be baptized later on, and they, 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 they walk through the processes that look like salvation. And they have a head knowledge of who Jesus is, and a, even a, a, minute, a little action of trying to hold on and reach out to some degree, but, but repentance has never happened. They, they, they never have turned from their sin. They've held on to it the whole time. And even the evangelistic call was not repent and turn from your sins. That was left out. It was merely receive Jesus so you don't go to hell and you get to go to heaven. And they hold on to their sins. And they come down and say a prayer and they get baptized. And then some of them even come back to church the next week. And they're still holding on to their sins. And I look out here week after week and I see it. And you try to speak into a person's life and you say, no, you can't be doing that and really be right with God. That sin, if you've really believed in Him, bear the fruits worthy of repentance that flow from repentance. Your life will be changed by His grace. And no, it doesn't save you. This isn't how you get saved, but it's, it's if you truly understand who Jesus is, it requires that you understand who you are and your sin. That you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. And there must be a moment in your life where you repent, where you, you enter even into that life of repentance, where you realize, I can't do it on my own. You realize, I'm not worthy to receive this salvation, to stand before the Lord. I am a sinner, and my sin condemns me. Turn from it. I need salvation from it. But thank God, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus died upon a cross for my sins, and I can let go of the weight, and I can receive Christ, and He saves me. That doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect in this life here and now because I still have the flesh. I still have the old man. And I still hold him in one hand. And I, I pick that weight up for a little bit. But he convicts me of it. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, so powerful to help us understand the difference between repentance and faith and the necessity of both. He says we must carefully bear in mind that no repentance can make atonement for sin. The blood of Christ and nothing else can wash away sin from a man's soul. No quantity of repentance can ever justify us in the sight of God. We are accounted righteous before God only for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith and not of our own works or deservings. It is of the utmost importance to understand this clearly. The trouble that men bring upon their souls, by misunderstanding this subject, is more than can be expressed. But, while we say all this, we must carefully remember that without repentance, no soul was ever justified, was ever yet saved. We must know our sins and mourn over them and forsake them and abhor them, or else we shall never enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is nothing meritorious, nothing that we earn our salvation of in this, it forms no part whatever of the price of our redemption. Our salvation is all of grace from first to the last. But the great fact still remains that saved souls are always penitent souls. And that saving faith in Christ and true repentance toward God 
are never found apart. There is a mighty, this is a mighty truth and one that ought never to be forgotten. It was the message of the early church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, Him God has exalted, speaking of Jesus, to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Acts 17 and verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends, uh, commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 20 and verse 21, How I kept back nothing from you that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand. Repentance towards God, and that prepares the way for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The final one, Acts 26 and verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do the works befitting repentance. If you have left out repentance in your salvation story, your salvation story is not one that is true. If your salvation is merely, I've tipped my hat to the Savior Jesus and I've brought Him into my life of sin as I keep doing all the things that I know I ought not to be doing, but I know He's grace. He's going to forgive me someday and and I'm going to go to heaven anyhow. That is not genuine faith. That is not salvation. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. Without repentance, you have no genuine saving faith. And so the question that this passage presses upon your heart and mind this morning is not have you believed. It's not have you walked an aisle and said a prayer. It's not even if you've been baptized. But the question is, have you repented? Have you repented of your sins? Is there a season in your life where you you you, you came so keenly aware of the weight of your sin that you were holding on to and you heard the glorious news of the gospel that there's a God who can free you from it that you said, I've got to let this go and turn from it and turn to God and believe upon Jesus as Lord and as Savior. If your testimony is absent, repentance, your testimony is not genuine. If you come to a time of invitation and closing, I'm here in the footsteps of John, the Baptist, trying to prepare the way of Christ in your life. And the message he proclaimed is, is, was a message that, that started with repentance and looked forward to the work of Christ. Mine begins with a message of repentance that looks back to the work of Christ on this side of the cross. But it's the same message, repent and believe. Is there a time in your life that you've repented of your sin and turned from it and clinged to Christ. I pray if there hasn't been, even now in this invitation, bow your head, the weight of your sin, and in brokenness and in humility, you'll turn to God and you'll say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I know Christ died to save me. 
Lord, save me through what He did. Forgive me of my sins. Make me a child of God. And if you pray that prayer, you pray it from your heart, God hears and God answers and God saves. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we thank You that You have provided a way for us as sinners to be saved. Lord, and merely by us acknowledging who You are, the devils believe and tremble, yet they, they haven't repented. Lord, it comes through us truly applying who You are and what You did in our lives. Through us coming to understand the sinfulness of sin, just how messed up and broken and wretched we are, how unworthy we are, and under the weight and brokenness and humility of that acknowledgement of sin, we turn to You, and what we find is not condemnation, but we find grace, we find mercy, we find pardon purchased by Christ. Lord, if there be one in here who's never repented and believed, I pray of Your Holy Spirit's power, You would draw them to Christ, convict them of sin, lead them to faith, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I ask it in His name, for His honor, for His glory.